There's lots of problems that happen on the web. Like nobody gets zero errors on a website. Everybody has like lots and lots of errors. But understanding which errors actually matter, which errors are actually important, is a really hard problem to solve. And the same way with performance is the web slows down in weird ways for all kinds of reasons. But not every slowdown is important. Answering the question of how fast is fast enough is a really hard question to answer. Hello, I'm Martin Thwaites. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short. A monthly series where we talk about how we can make production systems more observable, more reliable, and easy to maintain. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. I care about front-end observability because it is the true representation and reflection of what the users see. Everything else we do in the monitoring, observability, logging, all all of those spaces are our perspective as operations and developers of how our systems are performing. But ultimately, for a lot of times, that doesn't matter. What matters is what the user sees. And so sometimes our backend observability efforts are really accurate reflections of it, and we can get a lot more details to understand. But if the user is having a bad time, it doesn't matter what our other observability tools are saying. The user had a bad time. And so we need to actually look at that as the real source of truth in how the user perceives our systems. Yeah, yeah. Lately, when I introduce SLOs, I'm like, we can measure the customer experience and alert when it's bad. And then I go, step one, uh, approximate the customer experience by status and response time. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of feel the need to apologize sometimes. (laughs) I've never heard you apologize ever. Um, (laughs) I I think that that does sort of, you know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot is customer-centric observability. Because the idea of, like you say, logs, metrics, they're all decent things. But we need to think about observability in the context of a user. And that thinking about the user is way more important. Yeah, the user is not sitting in our our clouds. They're not in our data center. They're they're in a different place. They're using a weird Android device on some mobile network that you've never heard of. And there's a lot of things of real technical challenges that are totally invisible to us, but the user has to go through. So what sort of networks did they hop through? What sort of environment are they... Uh, are they using to, to interact with our application? And those all can cause their own set of problems. Uh, there was a there was a case a couple of years ago where uh, we detected this with uh, TrackJS. There was a, a browser extension called Honey, which was like a couponing thing. It would like detect like the like look up coupon codes or whatever. And they sent out a bad patch that like incorrectly patched the promise API on on web browsers. <gasps> and it caused errors on hundreds of thousands of sites. Just broke for like these bizarre reasons. And like it's none of our fault. It was none of their 
people's problem that this happened, but honey was such a widespread use thing that the fact that they didn't have that visibility to know that that's changed happened, like their customers still had a bad time. Their customers were still pissed that something didn't work. Right, right. So, so to solve this problem today, we have, we have two guests. Um, Todd, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Todd Gardner. Um, I have been working in front-end monitoring, observability, uh, and metrics for 10 years. Uh, I built a service called TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring, which has widespread use. And lately, I've been working on a new service called Request Metrics, which is trying to unite a lot of different concepts of front-end monitoring together to give a, a more holistic picture of what our end users experience. Okay, I really want to ask ab- about that, but first I, I want to <laughs> s- I want Winston to say hello. Hello. <laughs> that was a start. That was a start. Should I say more? Okay. Um, <laughs> one or two more words. Just you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hello, I'm Winston. Uh, I'm a product manager here at Honeycomb. I work on the API and partnerships team, but I also focus on developer experience, which has come to uh, expand into front-end observability. And you have a front-end background, front-end developer background. Yeah, and part of the reason I got handed this whole purview is because I spent nine years as a front-end engineer, you know, working up from uh, working at a Ruby on Rails dev shop, uh, learning jQuery, uh, all the way to you know, like writing custom vanilla JS uh, frameworks later in my career. And I switched into product management. And it's funny because the switch from engineering to product management was the more senior I got in engineering. I liked like architecting, but I wanted an even bigger picture view. I liked the customer focus. I liked thinking about all of the systems. And then I got introduced to Honeycomb and observability. And it's like, ooh, this is like the engineering side of that big picture thinking, like trying to take in the, the scope, but also being able to zoom into the nuances, the things like Todd just mentioned. Like, a browser extension shipped an update, and now uh, hundreds of thousands of websites don't work. So I, I think that's that that big picture thinking that's brought me to this realm. I think that's something that we miss as a backend engineer because we control so many things. You know, we control the, the the environments where our service runs. On the client side, you really don't. You know. Yeah, we think the cloud is far away, but. <laughs> At least we know which kind of computer is running on in the cloud. Yeah, I mean, I just got the Galaxy Fold, and you know, one of I, a it's a it's a Fold phone, which is a completely new form factor for a lot of people. And then I took it to the Honeycomb teams and said, "Here's what the dashboard looks like on um, a Fold phone." Um, I got a no in non-equivocal terms, equivocal terms <laughs> about whether we're going to support that as a form factor. Well, you know, <laughs> this idea that, you know, these are, there are millions of different device combinations from orientations um, to resolutions to hardware. To browser plugins. Yeah. And that's just mobile, you know, that's, then you get onto the desktops. Even browser runtimes, like there's different code bases behind, like they've all implemented, you know, the the spec of the web, but there are subtle differences between how Safari and Firefox and Blink act. And those are just the big ones. There's like several dozen other implementations that get smaller amounts of use. 
so tell us a little bit about how, how you see request metrics solving that problem then. What, what is it what is it that that's going to give the 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 real user front end type thing? What what's the thing that's missing? What is the gap that you see? There's lots of different tools that care about the front end, but they're all very aligned to a particular uh, hat that somebody would wear or a particular department in a large company, right? Oh, okay. So like Amplify feeds the marketing funnel kind of thing. Yeah. Or Google Analytics would, you know, tells you about like where your data came from. Or a product analytics tool like Heap might tell you about like custom events. And then an error monitoring tool like TrackJS will tell you when your JavaScript blows up. And a performance tool like SpeedCurve might tell you uh, how fast something loads. And then there'd be other tools that you would use to like monitor whether or not your APIs are performing quickly. And then there's security tools like Report URI or something like that that will tell you about when uh, bad JavaScript makes it into your page. But these are all different things. They're all different things that operate in different ways at different ways they price it and different agent requirements uh, that they put on the page. So And more JavaScript loading in your browser. Yeah, they're all JavaScript running in your browser. And that makes sense when you have a large organization that has all of these roles specialized. Everybody wants the tool for them. But what kind of gets overlooked is for the for smaller organizations that can't necessarily justify putting six agents on their website for all these different purposes. And maybe for a small, like cross-functional team, it's some of the same people wearing these hats that they don't necessarily want to learn multiple different tools. And so there's some of that, but also that the data in one of these concepts really informs the data of the other one. Oh, so like if you're looking at how far did a person make it into your website, how fast the page loaded matters. Exactly. Something that we learned with TrackJS and an earlier version of Request Metrics was there's lots of problems that happen on the web. Like nobody gets zero errors on, on a website. Everybody has like lots and lots of errors. Nobody gets zero errors ever. Like that's that yeah. just doesn't happen. But understanding which errors actually matter, which errors are actually important, is a really hard problem to solve. And the same way with performance is the web slows down in weird ways for all kinds of reasons. But not every slowdown is important. Answering the question of how fast is fast enough is a really hard question to answer. But if we pair that data up with web and product analytics data, to say like, hey, this error happened. And for the users that had this error, their conversion rate is 50% lower. Or their session tends to exit within 10 seconds of this thing happening. Or a correlation between slow load times and bounce rates or something like that. By pairing all of this data together, we can say like, here are the problems that we think really matter that are actually slowing down your your users, keeping them from accomplishing their goals. And so you can focus on those and not the noise that we all tend to deal with. And that's that's really important because computers are really good at doing that comparative analysis stuff. We're good at recognizing patterns when we see them visually. But you know, crunching through loads of data and saying, here's you know, 20 users that failed and then working out what they did before, that, that's not a good use of our time. 
my brain capacity is limited. <laughs> so I'd really like for a computer to do that for me. Yeah, computers are, are really good at looking at that that load of data. The, the trouble that we've had in kind of collectively solving these problems before is that they were all sitting in different tools with different data models used by different people. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do with request metrics is bring these different kinds of data, the product people together with the developers, together with the security people, and use that data to further the product as a whole. Yeah, that that separation. <laughs> I gave a talk uh, that Martin was at last year where I let it off with, you know, one of the, the appealing things to me of front-end observability is uh, the context that comes with it, right? All of that, the signals being a part and so the the goofy meme i made said uh we have a bug in production and the next panel was we know how to replicate it right blank stare we know how to replicate it right like oh no uh <laughs> and so it's like so so often some alert system is saying problem and that's it that's literally all you get is problem and then you have to hop to another tool and try to figure out if you can correlate problem with like a little bit more signal and then dive into another tool. And it's just like this big guesswork. And that is like so many frameworks and front end tooling is trying to abstract that away because they don't know how to solve it as a problem. They're trying to say like, well, it's consistent across all things. So now you just go in and fix the bug in your component and ship it and it's good. And it's like, hmm. That is not how the real world of the web works. Everything is in this dynamic, weird system, and there's humans involved that are clicking things in ways that you didn't know were imagined could be clicking on devices you've never seen, on outdated browsers, uh, with browser plugins you don't know. And it's just like you can't, you can't actually ever get into like this simplified environment that's gonna be like ah, pure or whatever. You're always dealing with the real world of humans and how messy they are. And observability helps you pull all that context together and say like, ah, here's the things that are unique about this. I wonder what of these are the important ones. Yeah, I think one of the things I've been talking about a lot recently is that the web's evolved. Like back, let's say 10 years ago, we weren't dealing with single page websites single-page applications. We were dealing with a, a page that loads server-side, and maybe there's some interaction that happens on that page with a bit of JavaScript. And that is very different to where we are today with React Spar applications where, you know, in some cases, the Spar application has way more code than your APIs has. You know, there is way more code in the front end than there is in the back end. However, the tooling, the, the what we're trying to do is basically, you know, trolling basically the developers going, there's a problem somewhere, see ya, <laughs> um, go fix it. Whereas on the back end, we were like, okay, there's a problem. It's right on this line of code right here. Go fix it. But on the front end, it's just kind of hand wavy. There's a problem. Um, and that I don't think the tools have caught up quite yet with that idea that we need to get really in-depth information about what happened before, what happened after, what caused this error to happen? What were the, the immediate steps before? What were the um, medium steps before? And I think that's a, a big problem at the moment, that the, the industry just needs to catch up. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're talking like exactly the problem space that initially brought me into this whole industry with Track.js is at that 10 years ago point was the, like the very early days of single page applications. And I built these large applications in Angular 1.0 and Knockout and Backbone and the early f web frameworks. 
And the thing we learned really quickly is that JavaScript really sucks a lot of the time. <laughs> and we'd have all these things that would break in ways that we never would have ever predicted. And so during the course of these projects, we, we'd figure out how to build error logging tools because they just didn't really exist. And TrackJS, the idea of it was born of the, of the idea that, hey, an error by itself in the front end isn't enough information to really understand anything that happens. And we need to capture analytics, telemetry about what was going on in the minutes leading up to this error to really understand it. So like, what were the network requests? What was happening in console? What did the user do? Those sort of things. And that solved a lot of problems for a lot of people. But the step that we're taking now is that getting into this situation is beyond just those user analytics and not every error, not every problem manifests itself as an error. And so understanding of this broader picture of experience is I think what the next evolutionary step in front-end observability is going to be. At the end of the day, a, conver a failed conversion is an error. Um, if you really think about it, if you're thinking about what what is an error in my system, well, if somebody fails to convert, isn't that an error? If somebody's um, process was too slow, is that an error? You know, errors aren't just HTTP requests. And that's, you know, historically where we've been. So taking that error definition and making that, well, things don't work, they don't work uh, as um, Jess has said previously, tried to measure the user experience um, and say what's good and what's bad is, you know, hard. It's squishy. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not a, here's a error code that's between 400 and 599, therefore it's classed as an error. You know, we don't have that really granular level to say what is an error. Yeah, there's there's degrees of errorness. There's degrees of how much do we care. Um, and, and it is in context. Todd, I'd love to hear about how you approach this with request metrics. So with request metrics, the, the difference is that we're just capturing a broader set of data. So TrackJS captured an error, and then it had it listened for like some analytics, but it only ever sent any sort of data when an exceptional event happened, so when there was something blow, blew up. Request metrics has to capture a far larger data volume because we're capturing everything all the time about sessions that don't necessarily break. But we need that baseline knowledge of like, what does good look like? What does, what does a, a, a good performance experience look like? What does a good conversion experience look like? So that when something unusual happens, we have something to compare it against and be like, oh, this is this is a weird anomaly. Like this error is, or this group of errors is, is spiking up and that's correlated with like this, you know, missing conversion event or this missing step that a lot of the users are taking. And so the volume of data that ends up needing to be captured is much bigger, which has its own kind of problems with ingestion and querying and, and all of those sort of, you know, the same kind of problems that Honeycomb and every other like uh, data gathering platform has to deal with. Right. You can get the data. The question is, can you like do anything with it? And how much is it and how much does that cost? I, I got to ask, is it open telemetry compatible? <laughs> Not yet. Ooh, I like that answer. Okay, that's better than I expected. All right, all right. So, so here's, here's kind of our <laughs> kind of position on it. 
right now, what request metrics is is working for. So like the, the people who worked really trying to help the most are small to medium-sized businesses. The people who are like, look at all of these different tools and are feeling a little overwhelmed by it. And they might have an analytics provider and they might have like some sort of like uptime monitoring thing, but they don't really have a broad suite. And so we're trying to to help them by bringing all of this data together for that smaller business because the installation path for request metrics is, hey, you drop this JavaScript on your page and now you get this broad concept of, of seeing what's going on. Now, this, this group also tends to not really know what open telemetry is. More importantly, uh, I don't think they care. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, like their, their systems just aren't as complicated the, uh, as the typical user of that. However, I think that's going to change. And I think more kinds of organizations would get value out of layering request metrics alongside other tools. Exactly. Because the front end and the back end, they, they're like related. Yeah. And I think request metrics sits in this really unique position where we could start a trace at a much higher position than anybody else. It's not about the first API call that happens. It's not about where the where the trace starts with the API call. It's about what the user intent was when they came on this page. So did they come on this page from a Twitter referral with the main goal being, you know, I'm trying to sign up for a webinar or I'm trying to buy this product or I'm trying to whatever. That's the real like core thing that is happening. And then within that, they might click something which triggers uh, an AJAX event that calls an API that does a whole bunch of downstream things. And so by listening in the client side, we had this other layer kind of on top of what is commonly considered the trace of like user intent and what they're thinking about. I like that intent. I like intent as a as an addition to what we talk about with tracing because you know tracing being causality, this thing happened because of this thing. User intent is very different to components causing things to happen. I really like that um, that narrative around capturing user intent. Um, so the trace happened because the user wanted to do this. Yeah, and it makes it easier to communicate with stake with non technical stakeholders. Like when there's an issue and it's going to take some time to fix it, it's not about saying, "Oh, hey, you know, such and such API has such and such a technical problem." And- going to take this long to you know work on it we can have a, a a conversation that our product people might have a way better understanding of like hey when users are trying to do this search it's failing and we need to fix that because we can talk about that initial intent in terms of what a user or a product person would think about the product so i feel like the the, the thorniest question in Front end observability is what's a session. Yeah. So if you're saying user <laughs> intent, someone lands on the page and it's going to be a product page. Yeah. And they they land on the page, you you start a trace with the intent of like shopping, and then they add to cart, and then they, you know, go through a checkout flow. Is that multiple traces in your purview, or is that a session uh, and a single trace? I'm curious how you handle that because it just seems like that's also one of those things where analytics products have a certain way of handling this. Mm-hmm. And dev tools historically, front-end dev tools have handled it like page load. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have like the concept of a page load 
and what happens on a page load. So how how have you all kind of navigated that? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. So we're uh, being that we are like straddling these worlds. Uh, these words mean different things to different people. Ooh. But in that analytic space, words like session. Yeah, yeah, words like session, user session, and the strongest kind of meaning around that usually comes from that analytic space. And so for us anyway, the term session is like a parody with what a Google Analytics or other web analytics tool would be when it describes session. So the user lands on your domain for the first time, the session has started. And then as long as the user continues to interact or go to other pages on your domain and less than, in our case, 30 minutes has passed, that session continues and everything is kind of grouped together. And if they come back a day later or two hours later, that's a new session. A new session from the same user, but it's a new session. And so in our tool anyway, there's a hierarchy. There's there's a user at the top is that we fingerprinted the user and we know like all the sessions that the user owns. And then within a session, there's n number of page views that they might have. And then within a page view, there's y number of events. And that event could be a click, a scroll, an error, an Ajax call, an API call, or, or any number of other things. And we can have all kinds of uh, properties and metadata associated at any one of these levels that further let us describe these things and what's unique about them in our environment. So do you... Uh... Do you think that um, the page load is something that triggers me at the moment around front-end observability? Because page load really was this idea of I click a link and I go to a new page and that page then loads. Mm -hmm. When we talk about SPAR applications, and this is the thing, because I'm not a front-end developer, I'm a back-end developer. Oh, did you say SPA like single-page app? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So in the, in the single page application world, the, um, the idea of React and Vue and all of those tools that build these really complex applications, page load is an overloaded thing. Because is page load, I've loaded the app because I've hit the page and I've loaded the app. If I just do a, a, a transition between two React pages, is that a page load as well? And I think it's you know we're we're kind of mushing these paradigms together a little bit. Yeah. By, by uh, well, is it a, is it a transition? Is it a page transition rather than a page load? You know, how do we say that somebody landed on the site and that was the first page that they hit? So it was a page load, but actually no, no, they transitioned through to this page. Yeah. And I I just I, I can't get my head around that personally. This is a this is a domain driven design kind of problem of. There are domains in which these terms have a specific meaning, like Todd mentioned, uh, request metrics views user sessions from the analytics domain, which the canonical solution there is Google Analytics. So the session there has a specific meaning. You're not going to get the same meaning between different domains, between the backend developer's perspective, the front-end developers, the users. The, <laughs> the user certainly has a different idea of what the session is. You just got to know which one you're in. Yeah. But I want it, I want consistency. I want everything to use the same name. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But I want it. I want it. You know, <laughs> isn't naming things. It's one of those, you know, hardest problems in in computer programming. Like we don't our names are over overused and over leveraged. To to your earlier point about like what does page load mean? Like I haven't heard a consistent way of of talking about that difference. I don't think there's a universally agreed upon name. 
I think of it as like a hard page load versus a soft page load. But like there's all kinds of differences. But like it is an important difference because they're different kinds of things. Like in a hard page reload, the JavaScript environment, the, the browser environment is discarded and rebuilt, which means like any sort of memory issues, any sort of like state that existed has to be, is completely discarded and then rebuilt from any storage system that might exist. Whereas in a soft page load, all that really is is a, is a UI affordance. Nothing was discarded. We just like, you know, rebuilt part of the DOM. And so the user might feel like, oh, this is a different thing. And for our purposes, we record that, hey, this is a soft page load. The user has a different thing. But there's no real objective numbers around performance to record around how fast that happened. Because it essentially, you just redrew part of the UI. I mean, this is why every few years, Google redefines page performance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Continues to. <laughs> with the latest version of Google Analytics? <laughs> well, no, with like Core Web Vitals. And before that, it was uh, what Speed Curve first tested. Um, ah, okay. Wasn't Lighthouse a thing? Lighthouse is still a thing. Yep. Lighthouse is still a thing. Which means everybody's in charge. <laughs> I mean, Google is de facto in charge because of their large S, right? Like, yep. there's no object, like, none of the things that Google defines around performance are in any way standardized or approved or anything. They just say, hey, the core web vitals are a thing and they're big enough that they can just they put it in blink and they say your, your search rank is going to be dependent on it. Yes, they control your search rank, which means they control your uh, significant part of your business. Right. It's our sandbox, so if you want to play in it, it's our rules. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but like this is why they did the whole detour of AMP <laughs> where accelerated mobile pages, uh, which anybody who worked on the front end is possibly very aware of just because it was like a subset proprietary spec that Google created that was supposed to be fast web pages where they were like, uh, people are doing too many terrible things to page load. We've noticed data that says it's bad. And so we're going to create a spec that only allows for certain things to happen. And then <laughs> over the course of a few years, it became bloated because everybody who had levers at larger companies was like, well, we need to be able to do this. And so they had to rewrite HTML and AMP. Wow. It's been a mess. It's, it's very deprecated now. But it just goes to show that like, when you're dealing with subjective measures, which is hum how humans experience things, we're often looking at lagging indicators of over the past 30 days, people have reacted negatively to something on our website. And now we must figure out what it was. And Google had the biggest set of data about that. And they tried to codify that. And then, of course, whatever you measure becomes what people optimize for. And so they keep rewriting it. And I think for me, when I was first exposed to observability, what was exciting was instead of trying to come at it from a metric point of view of like, here are the three key metrics that show that a user is having a good experience, you can ask a holistic question of what are people actually encountering on our website? We're no longer looking through these simple data collection tools of like page loaded in 0.5 seconds and UI showed up in you know one second. Instead, we're, we're, we're able to think more comprehensively of this page wasn't really legible. 
<laughs> for a broad variety of users until five seconds. And it seems like we should be giving them that faster. Let's dig into causes and they may be multivariable. It's not going to be like the JavaScript didn't load. It's going to be the CDN was having a bad day that what day. We shipped a poor change. One component was making too many API requests sequentially before it showed up. You just are going to find much more complex reasons because you can work with a much more complex set of data. I think context as well. This all comes down to context, doesn't it? The the more context you've got, the more questions you can ask. You know, the more the richer set of data, the um, all of that kind of stuff helps you to be able to ask more insightful questions about why did something go wrong? If all you've got is here's how long the first paint took, here's how long the uh, the last paint took, and here's when it became usable, you haven't really got a huge amount of information. You've got maybe the query string. But you want tons of context to be able to say, well, was it the user who was in, um, I don't know, in Norway with a French language pack running on a Galaxy Fold? The, that's the reason why they didn't convert, because you know nobody cares about my Galaxy Fold phone. I'm still bitter about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like boiling everything down to one number isn't the best. If only we had some hard science around that. <laughs> Unfortunately, hard science needs needs one number, needs it. Uh. <laughs> um, Todd, I'm wondering, uh, you said that request metrics is like you drop one thing into your page and you get a lot of the things that uh, otherwise you'd have to install a bunch of tools for. Mm-hmm. And yet, we're also talking about how every page has different considerations, every site has different considerations and different things that are important. Uh, are there ways for people to customize um, the events that go to request metrics to express that. Yeah, of, of course. So what what I meant by like you drop you know one thing in the page and you get this level of visibility is that like rather than having to figure out how to put you know six different agents onto a page or if you're unable to like deploy agents to your backend stuff or your cloud or you need to make code changes to add the eventing system that can be intimidating for some organizations. And so what we're meaning is like, hey, if you're, you know, stuck in analysis paralysis of, you know, getting any kind of observability into your system because it all seems so overwhelming, maybe we can get your foot in the door or get you something by pasting this script. And then it's not necessarily perfect, but you have something. Now, obviously, every site is different after it. Like there's some core things of, you know, this is how the web works that we capture automatically. So connection types, user agent strings, uh, what AJAX requests are going off. You know, all these things are just like, these are fixed things that I can record and capture, clicks, inputs, scrolls, sort of things. But of course, you can send up custom events to talk about like, hey, here's something that's unique to me. This is, the user started my podcast, the user paused, the user did a checkout or changed the color of the shirt that I'm trying to sell or or whatever it is for you. The user tried to hit the call settings button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or you want to describe the, your events in some way. Like you you want to say, hey, this is a, a, a VIP user. This Here's the, the user's set of properties. Here's, uh, as far as my server-side session concept, here's their session properties. You could send all of that up to us as arbitrary buckets of data, which then you can filter and sort, and we can look for commonalities with that as well, if you know the basics aren't there. But what we're really trying to do here is, is 
make it so that there's as little thought to get started as possible. Because we don't want you to sit and like overthink the perfect observability solution for you and end up implementing nothing. And when it becomes compatible with open telemetry, it'll be even more expandable later. Yeah. I think the the thing that I'm really interested in is easy mode buttons. You know, the how do we how do we make it really easy? Um, you know, there's something that we do with open telemetry is and also expandable. Yes. Because you said it yourself, it's about getting started. You know, it's about how do I get started really quickly and get an on-ramp into getting some rich information. But then what you've not what we got to try and stop doing with people is right I've got the on-ramp I've got that information right now I don't need to rip that thing out and put something else in that's way more complex once I get to that stage we want to be able to just go right well just add a few bits of information and ramp people up gradually and bring people on that journey of going here's more context wouldn't it be great if you actually had this information and this information and this information? And then they get this really rich set of data and they start to really understand what their applications are doing. And that is that really holy grail, if you like, of how do we get people on board with observability is about easy modes. Mm-hmm. That one, one line of JavaScript, just add this include and then this little initiate thing. Just do that. And then let's see what you got. We've had it a lot with the backend stuff where people do that really small bit of information, that really, like, let's just ingest Nginx logs. And they get this, oh, wow, here's a load of information that I didn't realize I had. It's like one backend's down. And I didn't realize that. But then they said, oh, well, let's start adding more information and more information because they get that bug, that that observability bug, which sounds a little bit wrong, but you know that that buzz of going, oh, I've got I've got more information. Oh, I can take the user, I can work out who the VIPs are, I can make sure that I always get all the data for the CEO because the CEO is the one that I want to keep happy. <laughs> <laughs> I've totally not seen somebody put the CEO's, um, the CEO's requests onto their own server um, so that they always get a good experience. I've totally not seen that ever anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you're absolutely right. In, internally, we call, uh, we refer to that as, as helping developers fall into the pit of success. Is that like, even when they screw up, even when they do something that we don't technically support or whatever, how do we make sure that like, we understand what they meant and try and, and help them down this path we take a little bit different, like we tend to opt for simplicity versus control in that kind of balance, simply because we're concerned about like giving people too many options up front leads to that, oh my God, I, this is too big, too hard, too whatever. And so we fully expect and hope people will outgrow us at some point that like, hmm. hey, you, you can start your observability like story with us. We can get your foot in the door. We can give you this thing really easy and fast. And then as you grow, as you become successful, as you specialize and deepen your your system architecture, you're probably going to outgrow us. You're probably going to need to go to uh, some more complicated tools. And that's that's awesome. We're happy we helped you on that journey. But for the company that is too small to have ever really even, honestly, most of them have never even heard the word observability, for those companies... Like, there's not a whole lot of options for them today. So, and that gives you the freedom to not try to be the best at page load performance and the best at uh, product 
funnel metrics and and instead make it work for a wider range of people who aren't experts. Right, exactly. And wet their whistle for observability. Yeah. So I think the, the talk that Winston mentioned earlier um, that he gave at um, a conference um, a while back, but um, that was all about how... Um, measuring page load performance. And it was very specifically about Core Web Vitals and how you can use observability to get even deeper into those Core Web Vitals, which I found really, really interesting about the... um, It was my first bit of information about how front-end developers actually think about these things because they'll run the page load for um, Core Web Vitals and they'll see what Core Web Vitals says on the Google Analytics pages and that kind of stuff, but then not have that information. And... That was a bit of a revelation for me that people were blind. They were blind to being able to do that. And I think there's, you know, the angles that you're looking at, Todd, around the observability angles, but there's even something more fundamental than that around Core Web Vitals that I think is being missed. The wild thing to me is that the, the, for most people who are, and it's a lot of smaller orgs who are probably going to encounter this core of vitals and and the like widely best practice like how to go about debugging them is to add a script that pushes your core of vitals scores to google analytics just like clear signal that this is a, a front-end observability and overlap with analytics is that uh this is a technically related metric but you track it in your analytics tool because that's the easiest way for most orgs to get access to it so the, the core web vitals is is where request metrics started. So when we first started building it out, like that was that was our initial goal is to start capturing performance and user experience data. And so we pulled that in. And everything else kind of came after that, where when we would see information about the core web vitals and like, oh, somebody would see, uh, you know, my my page has a slow largest contentful paint score. The two questions that everybody would ask was, does it matter first? Like, so it slowed down. Do I need to fix it? Like, who, who cares? Which we couldn't really answer without diving into that product and analytics space. And then second, okay, it slowed down. Why? Like, I can't recreate this in my own dev tools. I can't recreate it in Lighthouse. Why is it slow for this percentage of users? And we couldn't really answer that either by just capturing that data. We really needed to broaden our perspective. Um, and so answering that, that core web vitals is a really important set of metrics, really because Google says it is, as, as we talked <laughs> about before. But it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter, like because it's still important and we still need to think about it. And not a lot of organizations are yet. But yeah, I think it's about, you know, then yes, core web vitals is important, but what are the things that are affecting it? And I really I suppose I want front-end engineers to demand better and not sell. And that's not just about, you know, the, the users that you're talking about, which are, you know, the users who they build line of business applications. They build applications because they're they're told to build them. And they just, well, I, I kind of like to know a little bit about the front end, but I don't really care that much. I want all those front end engineers to really, really care about this and say, I want more information because that isn't good enough. And I think we did that on the back end and people have started to get on that bandwagon of no, 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 I need more. I need correlation. I need causation. I need high cardinality. I need high dimension. And, then, and people are getting on that bandwagon. 
And I want front-end engineers to start saying the same thing, to start using a tool like uh, like yours as an on-ramp to go, oh, this is what more information looks like. Oh, I really like that. Oh, this helps me. Oh, oh yes. Can I have more than that? And that's, you know, I really want front-end engineers to take away um, stuff like that and go, I want more. How can I have more? Yeah, I think we're on the cusp of of a of a big change in a lot of observability tooling where we expect the tools to do more of the thinking for us. It's not about like being able to write custom queries and get at my data and make charts and stuff like that. It's more expectations of our tools to figure out where are the anomalies, what things should I pay attention to, and let me spend less time thinking about how to answer a question and more time telling me what questions are interesting, where is there weird things happening, and how do I how do I not spend all of my time here and more time moving my product forward? Hmm. Yeah, and I think that becomes a stepping stone into uh, questions as a way of making sense of things, especially uh, the production environment. So it's like suggest questions, see that they stem from rich data sets, contextual data, and then eventually you get to the point where, yeah, you want to ask newer questions, better questions, more in, more niche questions, more relevant to your current ticket questions. And I think that's what becomes fun is observability is a continual opening up of the possibilities there. Observability is a continuing opening up of the possibilities. I love that. It's profound. It's a pretty good place to end a podcast. Indeed. I mean, it's been amazing to hear about request metrics. I get really excited about where front-end observability is going and um, all that kind of stuff. So it's been amazing to talk to both of you about where you're going and what you see as the the way forward for front-end Ollie. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. I, I love this conversation. It was fun. This is a blast. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-C-A-S-T. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.